Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. In 1936, you may know from your history classes that the United Kingdom went through a bit of a constitutional crisis when King Edward VIII abdicated his throne in order to be able to marry the American Wallace Simpson. Now, I'm not a historian or an expert on this event, but on the surface of it, it seems like a pretty astounding act to do for anyone, that you would willingly give up your throne for the sake of love. And I think it's funny, the comedian Jim Gaffigan has a joke where he wonders if Edward ever came to regret that, like if one day, years down the road, Edward was asked to take out the trash, and as he was walking out the front door, he mumbled under his breath, oh, I bet the King of England doesn't have to take out the trash. And that probably never happened. I bet he still lived a pretty comfortable life after giving up the throne. But on the surface of it, just hearing that someone willingly gave up the throne of being the King of England in order to marry the person that they love is a pretty significant cost. And as we get closer to Christmas, we're reflecting on all that it means for Christ to give up his throne, that he left glory in heaven to be born as a child on this earth. And we're reflecting on that and how Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2, this series that we've simply called Incarnation. Uh, we're reflecting on this passage of scripture where Paul calls us to be humble in our relationship with one another because of the humility Jesus displayed when he came to earth for us. Right there is the heart of Christmas. And as we reflect on that truth, we also are given a glimpse into what Christmas means for us. Because the reality of Christmas is not just some vague Christmas spirit you might be hearing about already or over the next few weeks that doesn't really seem to mean anything other than that we have to be somewhat nicer to each other until the new year. But, it seems, but instead, it means that because Christ has come to us in humility, we can live in the same way with one another. And to remind ourselves of that truth, each week of this series, we're reading all of this passage, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 together, and then focusing in on one particular part of that passage. So if you would join me, uh, the words will be up on the screen, and we will read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 together. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Many scholars believe that that passage we've just read together was originally composed as a hymn. And that could have been a hymn that Paul himself wrote, that Paul himself composed for the first time as he's writing this letter of Philippians. 
It could be that it was a hymn of some sort that the church sang in their worship together, and Paul knew that, and the Philippians knew that, and so he quotes it there in this passage to connect with the Philippians in that way. Regardless of where this text comes from originally, I mention that because there's an element of poetry to this passage, and I think that's significant when we talk about such a significant theological truth like the incarnation, God becoming man, because there are some truths in life that can only be expressed in poetry. Maybe you've experienced something in life, you couldn't explain it, whether it was joyful or painful, whatever it was, and you couldn't find the right words. All that could come to mind were words from a song or a poem that you were familiar with that captured what you were feeling in that moment. Maybe you've been in a worship service and you've heard the lyrics from singing together and you've thought that 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 explained things perfectly. You've never thought about God or your life or your experience with God in that way before and it was meaningful to you in that way. There seems to be something about how God has wired us as human beings. That means sometimes we encounter things we cannot fully understand or explain apart from songs, apart from poetry and the imagery that comes along with that. When the physicist Niels Bohr was trying to articulate these scientific concepts like how it was possible for an electron to occupy different states at the same time and be in multiple positions and levels of momentum and energy in a way that nothing else in our world does, you might notice I was looking at my notes a lot there more than I am normally because I don't understand it either. But as Niels Bohr was trying to explain all of that, he found that equations and math could only take you so far. He once said... That we must be clear that when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as in poetry. The poet, too, is not nearly so concerned with describing facts as with creating images and establishing mental connections. Some things are so beyond our grasp that if we are going to have any hope of understanding it at all, we need poetry. And if that is true of atoms and electrons that God has created, well, then how much more true will it be about the story of the God of the universe being born as a human being, existing as both fully God and fully man simultaneously? We seem to have no better explanation apart from poetry. So if that is true, we're left to reflect on this poetry to understand and explain why Jesus would give up perfection in heaven to be born to a poor, unmarried, young Jewish couple laid to rest at his birth in a cattle trough. Uh, What would possess someone to look at their form and nature as the Son of God as something that was not to be used for their own sake, but for the sake of others, like we saw last week? And it might be the same thing that motivated King Edward, only infinitely more so, and that is love. Yet just saying love doesn't fully do it justice. Because you, to, to say you do something out of love might sound nice, but there's, there's more to it. You can do something out of love and that still not demand a great deal of you. And yet the love of Christ demanded everything of him. Taking on a different, different nature, a different being, giving up the nature of God for the nature of humanity. And Paul reflects on that incredible fact in those three lines in verse 7 that we've already read. Paul shows us not only what Jesus gave up, that he gave up that divine status to come to earth, but the extent of what that meant. And once we see that significance, we can reflect on why he came to earth and what that means for us at Christmas and always. But that cannot happen apart from worship. Worship that taking in this poetry marvels at who Christ is and what he's done for us. 
In the first line of verse 7, Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing. When we talk about the incarnation, we're not talking about a slight temporary Jesus made himself nothing. He went from having more money in the accounts than he could ever spend to being completely broke. He went from living in a gated community to living on the street. He, he went from servants waiting on him hand and foot to being the one doing the serving. He did that only more for you and for me. He made himself nothing. And you might know that some English translations put there that, that Jesus emptied himself, which is a good translation, but can cause us to wonder what he emptied himself of, as if he had to pick and choose what parts of his divinity he was going to part with while he was on earth. And that can be a helpful thing to consider, but I think following that train of thought too far kind of misses Paul's point. Because the point's not to figure out what he emptied himself of. If that was Paul's point, he would probably tell us what Jesus emptied himself of in this verse. I think the point is simply that he emptied himself. And that might seem like an incomplete thought, but I think there is plenty there for us to ponder on its own. Because you've maybe experienced emptying yourself. You've maybe experienced limiting yourself for the sake of someone else. You've maybe experienced entering into the world of a child. Maybe you were wrestling with a kid, and if we're being honest, just putting everything on paper, if you wanted to, you could crush a kid in a wrestling match. And I don't think that's actually what you would do, or if that is what your plan is in wrestling with your child, you might have some other issues that we need to talk about. Because the point's not to win a wrestling match. The point is to empty yourself. The point is to make yourself nothing to be in the presence of your child. And that's what Jesus accomplished. He did not come in power because his goal was not to assert his dominance. He did not come in glory because the goal was not to us with all he emptied himself he made himself nothing because he came for our sake if someone comes to you with power and glory there is always some distance that remains if you could imagine someone wanting to come to you and they're surrounded by a security detail even if they do truly want to get as close to you as they can if there's security guards there keeping you from actually touching them or getting right next to them or anything like that there is always going to be some distance in the way and yet Jesus emptied himself to bridge the distance so that we might see him and know God. He came down to our level so that we might draw near to him. He did not do that for his own sake. If it was for his own sake, he did a pretty poor job. He came to earth for us. If you remember last week, we read a passage from the ancient theologian Augustine, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I do want to highlight pieces of that quote again, because at the end of the quote, he said that Jesus came to earth to free us unworthy creatures. Although he, Jesus, who submitted to great evils for our sake, had done no evil, and although we, who were the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits, he emptied himself for us, in order that he might give us what we did not deserve. And that's why he emptied himself. And to empty yourself necessarily brings about suffering. If you're wrestling with a kid, emptying yourself puts yourself at a greater risk of that child inflicting some harm on you in some way. And before the incarnation, Jesus knew no suffering, he knew no pain, he knew no imperfection, and yet he made himself susceptible to all that and much more. The prophet Isaiah envisioned what that would look like centuries before when writing about the coming of Jesus when he said in Isaiah 53, 
verses 7 to 9, that he, meaning Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. With the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is who Jesus is and what he did. He emptied himself for us. The Son of God was despised and punished for our sake. He was innocent, and yet he did not protest. He had no guilt, yet he did not fight for his rights. He was treated unjustly, and yet he put up no fight. He was put to death for our sake. He died the death that should have been ours. He was executed on trumped-up charges by those who were scheming to get rid of him because his, he desired that we would not have to endure the punishment we deserved. For all this and more, he's worthy of our worship. And Paul clarifies what this means by saying he took on the very nature of a servant. And you might remember in the passage we looked at last week, Paul said that Jesus was in very nature God. And he uses that same word again to say that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. He went from the penthouse to not having a house at all. He went from glory to grime. He went from all he could ever want to no guarantee of his basic needs being met. He made himself a servant. And to be a servant in the ancient world means to lose all of your rights and agency. Your owner, your master, was the one who called the shots in all things. They told you what you did, where you did it, when and how you did it. You were completely at the disposal of another human being. And Paul says that is what is happening at the first Christmas as Jesus is laid in that manger. He's taking on the nature of a servant, serving us when we did not deserve to be served so that we might be saved. And I think it's worth coming back again to, to Augustine when he says that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. That he, discipline, might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, courage, might be weakened, that he, security, might be wounded, that he, life, might die. You might empty yourself to enter into the world of a child. You might put yourself at the disposal of someone else and serve them in some way. But my guess is that stops at some point. You will not act like a child forever when you're entering into their world, especially if it's going to cause you harm or them harm. Emptying yourself is fine. Sometimes it might even be good, but not like how Jesus does it. Because we live in a world that places a priority on self-care and making sure your needs get met and taking care of yourself above all else because if you don't take care of yourself, then who will? And no one takes the posture of Jesus in a world like that. The servitude of Jesus might even seem offensive. The service of Jesus serves even when it hurts in any and all the ways that serving might hurt. That's what Jesus has done for us. And again, Isaiah anticipated this long before Jesus was on the earth in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, when he said, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, 
God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We, along with the rest of the world, looked at Jesus and saw a failure. We, as he hung on the cross, we saw someone who was unable to live up to the claims that they had made. We saw someone out of step with the way the world works. We saw someone who must be under God's punishment if he was going to meet death in such a cruel way. And yet that was not the case. Because he was the son of God, taking on the nature of a servant, enduring what our sins deserve, so that through his wounds our sin might be dealt with once and for all. He died the death that should have been ours so that we might have life with our God. He has done all that Isaiah envisioned and so much more. He came as a servant. He came as our servant so that we might be saved. And for that reason and so many more, he's worthy of our worship. Christ came to this earth in humility. He made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. And as Paul says in the last line of this verse, he was made in human likeness. Now, on one level, that is just a restatement of what we've already said. And maybe in our minds, it's less significant than some of the other things Paul says in this verse. It doesn't really seem all that climactic. Because to say that Jesus made himself nothing, he took on the nature of a servant, that seems to already assume that he's already on the earth in some form. So it might be a down note to end this verse on. Yet, what Paul says there is a startling truth in the ancient world to people of all backgrounds. There are plenty of stories in the Roman world of God's coming to earth. You might know stories from Greek and Roman mythology of God's coming down and appearing to be humans for a time various purposes. There are not stories of these gods coming to earth and giving up their powers, putting themselves at the disposal of human beings as they do so. No Roman person reading this letter in Paul's day would have thought it appropriate for a god to come to earth to serve and to be humiliated. If the divine was supposed to come to earth, if they were to do that at all, it was for them to be served, for them to show how powerful they are, for them to display their might and their glory. It was not supposed to be the other way around. In the Old Testament, of course, if you've read the stories of the Old Testament, you know tales of God interacting with human beings in various different ways. When you read it in its entirety, there are even stories of God revealing himself to humanity in some form for the sake of revealing who he is, instructing his people in how they are to live. Yet no Jewish person in Paul's day would have thought it appropriate for God to empty himself, to take on human likeness fully. Uh, that would mean a, a contamination of God's character. It would be unworthy of his immense glory. If God was going to come to this earth, it should be at a distance because if he gets too close to us, he's going to become contaminated with all of our mess that we find in this world, yet Paul says that in Jesus, contrary to what anyone else might think, God took on human likeness with all the frailties and limitations that come with that. To come back to Augustine one more time, he says, the maker of man became man, that he the bread might be hungry, that he the fountain might thirst, that he the light might sleep, that he the way might be weary by the journey, that he the truth might be accused by false witnesses. 
in the life of Jesus, God himself knows what it is like to hunger. God himself knows what it is like to thirst. God himself knows what it is like to be tired. God himself knows what it is like to have aches and pains. God himself knows what it is like to live in a world where things do not always go the way you want them to go. Jesus took all of this on himself so that we might be made new. The stories that motivate our world, the things that attract our attention, just like in Paul's day, tend towards power and glory and glamour and glitz and whatever else it might be. We find none of that in the birth of Jesus. He comes in humility. He empties himself. He lowers himself. He makes himself nothing so that by lowering himself to the very bottom, he might lift all of us up into the glory of God. And again, Isaiah gives us a glimpse into what this was going to look like. When he says, who has revealed, or who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. There was apparently nothing about the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth that set him apart. Uh, he did not have the looks of a movie star. He did not stand out in a crowd because he was a head taller than everyone else. He did not have the best eyes, the best skin, the best smile. God did not come to this earth in glory but in humility. He was not born in a palace, but in poverty. He was not born into comfort, but into pain, as a foreshadowing of the way his earthly life would end. He was not well thought of and exalted in his day, but he was looked down on and despised. And this is how Jesus chose to come to this earth, so that we might be redeemed. So again, why would Jesus make himself nothing why would he take on the nature of a servant? Why would he take on the likeness of man? Well, to put it as simply as we can, we could say that Jesus did all of this for us, for you, and for me. And you might want a more complicated answer than that, and there are surely plenty of ways we could clarify what that means. But at the most basic level, Christmas tells us all that Jesus has done and tells us he has done all of this for us. And we need to be reminded of that, like Lyle prayed for us earlier, we need to be reminded that we were a part of a church body, that these things that Jesus does for us is not just for me as an individual, but for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, at the same time, we don't want to draw that out to the point that we lose ourselves in this crowd. Because the story of Christmas is not just vaguely for all humanity, and you get caught up in that in a roundabout way. No, the story of Christmas is for you. When we say Jesus has done this for us, when we say he's made himself nothing, when we say he's taken on the nature of a servant, when we say he's been made in human likeness, we are saying he did it for you. This is the love God has for you specifically. This is the length God has gone to for you. The truth of Christmas is not some vague, warm feeling we should all feel this time of year. It is a reality that will transform our celebrations and our very lives if we listen to what it says and are transformed by it. Our world says to stand up and fight for ourselves. Christmas tells us that true life comes through service. Jesus was as great as any individual can be, and he demonstrated 
demonstrated that greatness through service. It seems like the more someone feels remind you of how great they are, the less great they actually tend to be, or maybe I'm just a cynic. Because if someone feels the need to tear down others in order to build themselves up, that might be an indication that they don't actually believe themselves to be all that great, so they need to make themselves feel better by tearing other people down. Yet true greatness looks like someone who is content with who they are and feels no need to prove themselves to anyone. And when we look to Jesus, we see the fullest example of that that we could ever imagine. He was fully God. He was perfect in every way, and he willingly gave that up. He came to earth. He didn't have any any bones to pick. He didn't have a desire to assert himself. He simply came to serve. He put the needs of others ahead of his own every time. And as he did that, yes, it ultimately led to his death, but his resurrection as well, where he defeated sin and death forever. And that is what true greatness looks like. That is what it means for us to become great as God's people in the world, to serve others so that they might be built up. Because this is who Jesus is. He gave up what was his in order to take on the exact opposite and all the pain and suffering that goes along with that for our sake. It was not a strategy in line with how our world tends to work, but the ways of God seem to rarely work the way that we would tend to do. He did not make an efficient decision. You could perhaps even make the case that our standards, the incarnation, was not a wise decision. It was not a strategy that brought about success and acclaim, which tend to be the goals of our adventures in our world. The incarnation did not create instant shockwaves beyond the immediate vicinity where Jesus was born. But the incarnation has been turning the world upside down ever since that first Christmas. Because it shows beyond the shadow of a doubt that God chooses what is lowly and insignificant to be the means through which he makes himself known. He loves us so much that he gave up his glory so that we might have it ourselves. God comes to earth as fully God and fully man, and that is a mystery, that is a marvel. It is a problem that can't be solved with pure math, but it is one we have been reflecting on ever since it first happened as God's people. So maybe this Christmas there isn't any explanation left to do, but simply poetry to marvel at. Maybe the only appropriate thing we do is respond to what Jesus has done for us with our worship, exclaiming that even if I don't understand it fully, even if I can't articulate it perfectly, it is a marvelous truth that transforms my entire existence and I want to experience it. So in these next few moments, while we sing, while we prepare ourselves to take communion, where we reflect on the marvel of Jesus coming to earth for us, maybe we should pause and consider that he has done all of this for us. Maybe you need to carve out time in the next few weeks to reflect and give thanks to God for what Christ has done. Maybe you still have questions about what this means and how this works, and that's what we're up here for at the end of the service. That's what we're out at the Welcome Center for as you are leaving. Maybe you need someone to pray with. You need someone to walk alongside you so that you can experience the power of the incarnation right here and right now. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've brought in here or what's waiting for you once you leave, Christ came to this earth for you. He came as a servant. He came for our sake. He has great love for you. Love greater than you can imagine. So let the way that he demonstrates that love and service, transform your Christmas. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the great love you've poured out on us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you have given up so that we might have life with you. God, as we are in this month, the calendar reflects specifically on, on Jesus' birth and it's coming into the world for us. God, we ask that you would draw us near, draw us deeper into these truths that Jesus has lived and died for us so that just as he was resurrected, we might be resurrected as well. Help us to be transformed by that truth. Help us to move in the world in the way that Christ has gone in the world for us. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.